0: That's Shopify.com slash special offer.
1: This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Defilers of the dead, vicious violators of the innocent, the fiendish ghouls, two of history's most diabolic demons. Selling cadavers and corpses to the sinister Dr. Knox for his forbidden experiments.
1: A century after the murders, William Burke and William Hare found a home in cinema and radio.
2: Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. If a body need a body, just call Burke and Hare. I'm tired of waiting for him to die, Burke. Go look at him.
0: Yes,
1: These programs helped create the mythology of Burke and Hare. But what has really driven the legend is the sheer number of tourist attractions in Old Town. Garishly dressed guides, draped in period costume, wait on a designated corner for tourists, even in the rain. Many of them are factual, even entertaining, like this one from the City of Edinburgh tours.
2: My name is Burke, William Burke, and I was hanged on the 20th of January, 1829.
1: But historian Janet Phillips says that, like any legend, there's quite a lot of misinformation. Tell me about sort of the things that pop up that people think. Uh, Number one,
3: they were grave robbers, um, that they started off robbing graves and then got lazy and went to murder. Number two is probably that they were Scottish. Even my son's school actually, they did famous Scottish people in history, and Burke and Hare appeared there.
1: If you've forgotten, Burke and Hare were Irish. And I can attest to that first myth thanks to a taxi driver I met in Edinburgh. Do you know much about Birkenhair? Yeah, yeah. What do guess, you know? They were, the ones, they were the ones that did dig up the graves eventually because they ran out of bodies. If you couldn't understand him, he said they were the ones who dug up the graves because they ran out of bodies.
3: They feature in Edinburgh dungeons. Obviously, there's several, several pubs, um, several restaurants. There's a couple of lap dancing pubs called Birkenhair.
1: Actually, it's really just one. It's in Westport, where most of the murders took place. And the sign reads, Burke and Hare, pole dancing, lap dancing. No subtlety in advertising there.
3: We do certainly seem to have an industry that exploits that side of Edinburgh. It's tricky because they're history stories, you dig them up, and as the stories are told, they get changed and modified. Um, and I'm not sure that some of the tourists that come here and hear these stories are hearing what actually happened. But then that's how myths and legends pass over time.
1: All of these tours label Edinburgh as the genesis for odd, creepy true crime stories. As I mentioned before, in 1884, author Robert Louis Stevenson based his famous short story, The Body Snatcher, on Burke and Hare. And two years later, he wrote an even more disturbing book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That story was based on another famous Scottish criminal who roamed Edinburgh at night in the late 1780s. Okay, tell me about Deacon Brodie. I find the story so interesting. Deacon Brodie then was somebody who
3: was actually an um, upstanding citizen during the day, and during the evening he went out and he uh, broke into houses and stole things. He was a burglar. So he was the inspiration for the story of Jekyll and Hyde and the idea that you could be a respectable citizen cabinet maker during the day, but in the evening, you were completely different.
1: That concept, that there's a little Jekyll and Hyde in all of us, has always fascinated me. In fact, the title of this podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, comes from Jekyll and Hyde. It's the moment that Dr. Jekyll realizes how powerful his potion has become. He says... I knew myself, at the first breath of this new life, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil. But the phrase, to me, really refers to the duality of someone's personality. How we might be born inherently good, but we might also have a touch of bad. And some of us have a little more than just a touch. So the story of Burke and Hare isn't just about murder and greed— or at least it shouldn't be. But that's always been the focus for most tours and many writers. And Janet Phillips says that inaccuracies can detract from the real story. People come in and they talk absolute rubbish about Hare. It's,
3: it's a bit like the tourism that's out there. That's not the story. You don't have to make it more gory. It's already two people that are killing people for money. It's gory enough.
1: It was late October of 1828, and if Burke and Hare weren't concerned about getting caught by now, they should have been. In fact, they might have been planning to expand their murdering scheme to Glasgow or Ireland. Burke and another man were supposed to be traveling assassins of sorts. Hare would stay in Edinburgh to receive the bodies and deliver them to Dr. Knox. It was a horrid thought, but the other man involved was interesting. A little more on that later on. The people of Old Town would have been terrified if they knew that two serial killers had murdered at least 15 people that year. People were vanishing with no trace left, and the police were never alarmed. As immigrants moved in and out of a city in flux, Burke and Hare continued to search for victims, for easy targets. That October, Jamie Wilson's mother frantically searched the streets for her missing son. He had quite a large family in Edinburgh, and they feared foul play. They were desperate to find him. As they begged for help from the dwellers of Old Town and the police, the air in the city was dense with a putrid mix of smog, fog, and garbage. It seemed perversely fitting that Halloween was here, a celebration of mischief from sundown to sunrise. It was also a night when people pretended to be something they weren't. In the 1820s, Halloween was called All Hallows' Eve in Scotland, the night before All Saints' Day. It marked the end of summer and the harvest season. The Scots would ward off evil spirits by lighting bonfires and lanterns. Carving pumpkins was an American tradition. But in Scotland, they carved turnips and turned them into spooky lanterns. Children disguised themselves as ghouls and went door to door demanding treats. In an odd note, I love those, the witchcraft act of 1735 forbade the consumption of pork pastries on Halloween. It wasn't repealed until the 1950s, and since then, sausage rolls have been a popular treat at Halloween parties and gatherings. So for people in Old Town, Halloween was also an excellent excuse for a party ahead of a religious holiday.
3: Halloween is the is the night before All Saints' Day, so it was a religious holiday. They had Halloween parties.
1: It was early in the afternoon on Friday, October 31st. William Burke was taking his ritual nip of whiskey at Reimers' store in Westport. He was chatting with a shop boy when he spotted an old, hunched-over woman entering the store. She said that she needed help finding her son. Burke
0: picked up in the pub he used to go to, Dan Reimers, at Westport, and he picked up a lady who was a sadly bemused lady looking for her son, who may very well have been somebody who was
1: trying to get away from her. Her name was Mary Doherty, but Mary Campbell was her married name. The old woman's only purpose for coming to Edinburgh from Ireland was to find her son, Michael. She said he was staying at a boarding house just outside the city. When she arrived that morning, Michael's landlady told her that she had missed him by three days. Doherty thought it best to spend the night in Edinburgh. She strolled the streets along Old Town that morning and popped into dark pubs looking for Michael, all in hopes that he had wandered there. She was about to go. Uh,
3: Bert got speaking to her and discovered that her name was Doherty, which um, he said was his mother's name, and does actually appear to have been (laughs) his mother's surname. So it's not some lie he was telling her, but the claim that they had the same surname therefore must be related (laughs)
1: Mary Docherty smiled as Burke gushed about his family, and hers. She was frail and vulnerable, especially after walking up and down the hills of Edinburgh all morning. Historians Owen Dudley-Edwards and Janet Phelps say Burke's presence cheered her up. And Burke talked to her in Irish. Now think about the effect of that.
0: Here you're somebody whose natural language is Gaelic, G seemed to have much less of a hold on English than Burke himself had. And here was this lovely voice talking to you in Irish, saying, You know, it'll be all right, we'll find him.
3: But he then said, You know, it's late, don't go, come back. You can sleep at our place, we'll have a Halloween party. So this is this is the sort of person that Burke and Hare looked for. They were they'd come into the town, they didn't know anybody, and they were about to leave,
1: so nobody would notice. William Burke could be so charming, especially to an old woman who was desperate to find her own son. Mary Dockerty took his arm, and they walked along the cobblestones to Burke's small house. Soon she was sitting by the fire in Burke's dwelling, eating porridge and milk. A neighbor stopped by and noticed that Burke and Nellie McDougall were inside. John Brogan and his family had left a few weeks earlier. You've got a stranger here, the neighbor told Nellie and nodded toward Mary Dougherty. She replied that the woman was Irish, a friend of Burke's. The old woman stayed quiet as she warmed up by the fire. Mary drank whiskey slowly at first. By the evening, Doherty was so hopelessly intoxicated that when she tried to leave, Burke's neighbor suggested she stay inside so the police wouldn't arrest her. She slept by the fireplace, sipping on rum. In the meantime, Burke returned to Reimer's store and found Hare drinking whiskey, of course. He told Hare that they had what he called a shot in the house. Hare nodded and agreed to come to Burke's home later that night. Before Hare arrived, Burke would need to evict some other guests, relatives of theirs who had been living with them rent-free for about a week. It was Anne and James Gray and their child. Burke didn't want any witnesses. He trusted no one, even if they were family he told the Greys that Doherty was a relative of his mother. The Greys were being evicted.
3: So the Greys were related to the Burks, um, and they had been staying there, not paying any rent. Uh, And he obviously didn't want them around when this was going to happen, so he said to them, you need to move out, you're not paying rent, I've arranged for you to go and stay around another house. And he sent them around to Hare's house, where Hare had got beds for them.
1: That evening, the Burks quickly shuffled Anne and James Gray out the door, even before they could gather all their belongings. The Hares and Burks rejoiced with their new friend, Mary Doherty. They danced, drank spirits, and played music much of Halloween night. Burke sang his favorite Irish ballads. And they then had this Halloween party uh,
3: where there was Burke and Nellie, his wife. The Hares came round. The people who lived on the floor... Uh, of Burke's house where he was, so um, Mrs. Law, they came round and John Brogan's son, there was a group of them, they all came round and had this Halloween party.
1: Which was drinking whiskey. Which was
3: drinking whiskey and dancing. Burke was apparently a really good dancer um, and playing the flute and this sort of thing.
1: Mary Doherty even danced, but she was a bit too enthusiastic and hurt her foot. By 10 o'clock that Halloween night, most of the neighbors had left. And then around 11 they heard a huge ruckus inside the house, which wasn't out of order considering how often Burke and Nellie fought. But this involved another woman. A neighbor squinted through the front door's keyhole. She thought she saw Nellie McDougal pouring whiskey in Mary Doherty's mouth forcefully. After a while, it grew quiet inside. The neighbor couldn't hear anything, so she retreated to her own home. Burke and Hare both drank more whiskey, a lot more whiskey. And then all of their resentment toward each other, their pent-up anxiety, seemed to explode. William Burke struggled, digging his fingers into the wooden planks of the floor. The hands of his much younger rival gripped tightly around Burke's neck as he gasped for breath. It wasn't that Hare was more capable, but the unfortunate combination of whiskey and a quick temper frequently quashed rational thinking. Burke glanced at Hare's black eyes and recognized only seething rage.
3: The wives always left the room when these sorts of things happen.
1: Smart idea. Except this time, Nellie screamed for neighbors to call the police. Hare was straddling Burke and strangling him. Now Burke knew what his victims might have felt. No air, no way to take a breath.
0: A nearby inhabitant heard the cries and then heard footsteps of the person being drawn back, saw a policeman in the distance and the neighbor called for the
1: policeman, but he did not come and the neighbor went his way. Margaret Hare tried to calm neighbors, saying it was just a drunken scuffle that would be over shortly. Most Scots knew that the police had serious crimes to deal with on Halloween, and breaking up two angry Irishmen in a brawl was not one of them. As Burke and Hare flailed about the room, Mary Doherty became alarmed. She had grown fond of Burke, her distant relative and her new friend who had helped her that night. She stood up and ordered Burke to sit down. She was concerned he was going to get hurt. Hare responded by knocking the old woman down. She tumbled over the stool. Soon, she realized she couldn't interfere safely, so she crept along the straw-covered floor looking for cover.
3: Somebody in that house then shouted, murder, and the person who lived above He was a grocer and was concerned about the contents of his shop. Did actually come down and investigate what was happening. Looked around to see if there was anything there. He tried to go and get police, uh, but there were no police around. His store looked fine. Nothing was interrupting his livelihood. And so he went back to bed.
1: Suddenly, Burke and Hare stopped fighting. They looked over at old Mary Docherty. Then Burke and Hare decided to do what they had done 15 times before. They put aside their fight, their contempt for each other. There were more important things to do now. They kindly suggested that she lay down, and when she obliged, Burke positioned himself on top of her, pressing his leg against her ribcage to compress her lungs. Hare put his hand over her nose and mouth. There was a slight struggle as her face became livid and blood-flecked saliva trickled out between her lips. One of the men put his hands around her throat and squeezed until it was over. But he squeezed a bit harder than usual, maybe from the excitement of their fight. He left a mark on her neck. Finally, she was dead. They stripped off Mary Doherty's clothes and hid her body under damp straw inside the bed. There was a knock on the door. The wives had returned. William Burke quickly walked down to Dr. Knox's dissection room and rapped on the door. The porter, David Patterson, answered, "'Come with me,' said Burke." Patterson bundled up, and both men moved swiftly through the chilly October air. It was now officially All Saints' Day, a day celebrating the saints and the connection between the living and the dead. When the porter and Burke arrived at his home, he pointed to the straw and said that they would have a body ready for him in the morning. Patterson nodded and left. He didn't seem a bit concerned about the implication that this could have been murder. When the Harris and the Burks were alone, they continued drinking, they continued dancing and playing the flute, and then they all fell fast asleep as Mary Docherty's body lay nearby, buried in the straw. And this is how each of their murders went. They targeted a vulnerable person, plied them with spirits— burked them, and tried to dispose of the body as quickly as possible. It was a very reliable method, but not this time. Anne and James Gray were perturbed with their relative, William Burke. They were annoyed to see him when he knocked on their door at the lodging house the next morning. Burke was anxious. He wanted to know how they slept. And he was apologetic. "Family should be treated better, he admitted. He offered them a dram of spirits and then breakfast back at his house. The Grays were wary. After all, he had just ejected them last night but they had no hope of receiving a proper meal at Hare's boarding house. And they had left some things behind yesterday, so they accepted his invitation. Now remember that Burke and Hare had not yet delivered Mary Doherty's body to Dr. Knox's lab. The Greys come back. They
3: had left their child's stockings, um, so Mrs. Gray comes back.
1: When they arrived, the Greys met several other neighbors, along with Nellie McDougall. Where is that little old woman? Anne Gray asked Nellie. She was too drunk, replied Nellie, and began acting rudely, so we told her to leave. That seemed reasonable. Anne Gray gripped the stem of a smoking pipe in between her teeth as she began searching for those stockings. She poked around the dingy bedroom. Burke was behaving oddly, even for him. He was holding a bottle of whiskey and sprinkling the contents on the bed, under the bed, on the roof, even on his chest almost like holy water. He had no real explanation. It made no sense. Anne Gray began looking for her child's stocking in another section of the straw, and Burke became skittish. He ordered her to go into another room, which she did. But when Nellie and Burke stepped outside briefly, Anne took her husband by the arm and returned to that suspicious pile of straw in the corner.
3: She's looking through the straw at the end of the bed, and she discovers this
1: body. The Gray saw Mary Docherty's arm first, then the remainder of her naked corpse. It was the little old lady from last night, Anne told James. He lifted up her head. There was blood on her mouth and ears. They were disgusted and frightened. They buried her in the straw, hurriedly gathering their things and their child, and ran toward the door. Anne Gray was ready to go to the police, but... She
3: then goes off, going to report it to the police, and she is then stopped by the two
1: wives, Nellie and Mrs. Hare. It wasn't very easy to be an honest, moral person, not in Old Town, and certainly not with these people. The Greys knew how deceitful William Burke could be. James Grey glared at Nellie and demanded to know what was buried deep inside the straw. When she tried to explain that it was all innocent, he yelled at her, I suppose you know very well what it is. Nellie fell to her knees and tried desperately to stop him from leaving. They
3: offer her a large amount of money to just let this go. So there is the evidence that the wives knew exactly what was going on.
1: Nellie said that the little old lady had died from too much alcohol. Anne Gray glanced at Nellie, a member of her own family. She knew then. That she was looking at a murderer, or at least an accomplice. Nellie quickly tried another tactic. She promised Anne and James a new business venture, a regular, healthy income. The Greys were nearly destitute. They desperately needed that money. It could have changed their lives. So Nellie offered to cut them in. They didn't respond, and Nellie cried, "My God, I cannot help it." Anne Gray had made a decision
3: no, I'm going to go and report it to the police. So Mrs. Hare and Mrs. Burke come back and they tell Burke and Hare what has happened.
1: As the Greys made their way to the police station in Old Town, Burke and Hare panicked. They rushed to load Mary Docherty's body into the tea chest. If there was no corpse to be found, they couldn't be charged with a crime. It would be the Greys' word against theirs. Burke had already alerted Knox's porter to expect a fresh body soon. Burke and Hare hired a street porter and tied a rope around the chest's lid. The man lifted it on his back. A bit of gray hair fell through the lid, but the man quickly shoved it back inside. Clearly, this porter had dealt with resurrectionists before. Burke and Hare and both wives all led him towards Surgeon Square, where David Patterson was expecting them. And soon... Old Mary Doherty was gone. When the three men arrived at Dr. Knox's dissection room, David Patterson answered. He handed them a down payment of five pounds. The anatomist wouldn't be able to see the body's condition until Monday. If it seemed suitable, then Burke and Hare could return for the other five pounds. Burke was beside himself. He might have felt the shakes from too much whiskey or stress from a guilty conscience. Either way, he seemed to know that this was the end.
3: They need to get caught, because they will just carry on murdering unless somebody catches them.
1: It was about 7 p.m. that night when James and Ann Gray pushed open the doors of the police office in Old Town. There they met a sergeant who, along with a constable, left with the Grays to return to William Burke's home. The police officers were cautious. This seemed like an outlandish story, even for people living in Westport. Anne Gray led the sergeant and constable straight into the house, past Burke and Nellie. She pointed to the straw bed in a corner where Mary Docherty's body was laying. There's nothing there.
3: There's a single spot of blood on the bed, which
1: they can explain away. Nellie McDougall said that a female lodger had slept on that straw a few weeks earlier and had some cuts. Nellie said she had never cleaned up the blood. The police eyed Mrs. Gray, who was now branded a liar. And in the conversation, it's brought to the police's attention that
3: the Grays were actually staying in Burke's house and had been asked to leave because they weren't paying their rent.
1: The sergeant turned to William Burke. "'What became of your lodgers?' he asked. Burke pointed to James Gray and said, "'There's one of them. We evicted them for bad behavior.'" That, of course, wasn't true. But William Burke was desperate now. And it seemed like the officers believed him.
0: So when the police were told about this, they came to make an investigation. They were suspicious of the story rather than of the crime. It seemed to be a strange kind of thing that being said that now the body had been there and now the body wasn't. Anyhow, the police knew Burke There had been this time a couple of months earlier when Burke had found two policemen fighting with a very drunken woman and she seemed to have been winning.
1: Nellie McDougall launched into a very detailed story about how they had known Mary Doherty for some time. They knew her very well, in fact. The Greys stood there, dumbfounded. Now they weren't being believed. And the police began to think, This
3: is just sour grapes. They're just being vindictive here, and they're uh, going to forget it.
1: Anne Gray insisted to the police over and over again that there had been a body there when she left. The old woman was practically in a drunken stupor when the Greys had been kicked out, and now she was dead. The police didn't believe her or her husband.
3: They could have taken that money and just disappeared, uh, and, Burke and Hare would have gone on forever. But they don't. They go to the police. So I guess they're, they're almost like the moral compass in this story. They are doing what should have been done when they discovered it.
1: But Mary Docherty's body was gone. There was no evidence. And that was the brilliant thing about Burke and Hare's method. Once a victim was with Dr. Knox, he or she was just another corpse on the table of an anatomist. If there had been any signs of murder... An intensive dissection would have made them impossible to detect afterward. Now it was the word of four people against the Greys. Anne and James picked up their belongings and left. Birkenhair had gotten away with it once again. Even in modern times, a case like this still would have been difficult to prove. But if anyone could have done it, it would have been Daniel Westcott and his collection of donated cadavers, which lay across 26 acres in central Texas.
2: All right, so these bodies have been had here, probably the first ones we're going to come up to, just a little over a year. And so they're almost all skeletonized. At this point, they're about ready to come in.
1: And they're under a cage.
2: These are under a cage, yeah. So they were protected from vultures and stuff like that. So this is just a natural kind of without predator decomposition that you would have.
1: Dr. Westcott is a forensic anthropologist. In fact, he's one of the best in America. He's the director of the Forensic Anthropology Center at Texas State University in San Marcos. He runs the world's largest body farm. It's a pretty gruesome phrase that's also very, very accurate. This is a human decomposition research laboratory. Donors gift Dr. Westcott and his team their bodies so forensic science students can study how they decompose.
2: This one actually kind of looks, it's like a coffin, so it's just a box with the body in there. And what they're actually looking at is movement of the body and then how the joints disarticulate. Oh, okay. And this is actually for an archaeological thing. So you think about it, if you dig up an archaeological site, you're looking at you know, sometimes hundreds or thousands of years of processes that go on. So the question is, is how did he actually get to those exact processes?
1: Dr. Westcott receives as many as 70 body donations a year. Some are covered by metal cages, so scavenger animals like coyotes and vultures can't reach them. Others are buried to measure how they degrade under the ground. This is some of the best research on forensics in the world. These cadavers are used to solve crimes, educate law enforcement through workshops, and save lives. But this isn't the easiest location for me.
2: Uh, so now we'll start getting it somewhere there's more soft tissue left.
1: This was a pretty strong smell. I guess you get
2: used to it, right? You, you get used to it, like anything else.
1: Dr. Westcott teaches the country's top forensic science students through hands-on experience. Around 30 graduate students monitor the site daily, taking measurements like body temperature and levels of decomposition. They scan through footage from the various wildlife cameras Westcott has set up. It's a unique learning experience for students who might end up working for the federal government or a local law enforcement agency. One body is used for decades in many different ways, including murder investigations.
2: We also do cold case work for the police. So if we have, you know, badly decomposed or um, skeletonized remains, the police will call us. We will go out and help with the recovery. We'll go we'll do the analysis. Uh, we'll help uh, facilitate the identification of the individual all the way through. So it may be that, for example, I, my, I estimate the time since death, and it may actually exonerate somebody.
1: So... One-body donation can really affect so many people in education and in solving cases. I mean, it's valuable. This is a valuable thing.
2: Oh, yeah. For us, especially the way that we utilize the bodies, like I said, every body that's donated to us gets put into a research project.
1: Dr. Robert Knox seemed to be at a crossroads in October of 1828. The tension within his team was undeniable, and the acrimony and jealousy amongst colleagues was only becoming worse. And he was widening his research interests, and not in a positive direction. Knox was pondering writing a book on his theory of human history, something that he believed would change the world. It would be based on his observations of black people while he was stationed with the British military in South Africa. In the mid-1800s, the dominant view was that race determined people's culture, behavior, and even their character. Researchers in Europe and North America pointed to those factors to support slavery and antisemitism. But as usual, Knox was conflicted and complicated. He was anti-Semitic, but he also railed against slavery. Knox believed that races were distinct species with specific aptitudes. Some were born to lead. Others were not. Regardless of his political and cultural views, Knox was becoming increasingly arrogant. He isolated himself from other anatomists in the city, but that wasn't a concern because his classes were filled to capacity. His family was well cared for and his body suppliers were reliable. After all, he was using the cadavers for the good of society to train surgeons and to save lives. And that's what anatomists today argue those who buy corpses legally. But what about those who break the rules? Anthony Horan with the Catholic Church is concerned about those people. The story of Birkenhair isn't entertaining to him at all. It's a history lesson, one that illustrated how a lack of respect for human remains can do so much damage. We appreciate that, that bodies are, are, are used for research purposes and that's... I suppose for, um, for humanity that can be a good thing. But in terms of retrieving bodies or um, ask, you know,
2: getting people's permission to do that once they've died, uh, hounding families
3: are not appropriate and should not be encouraged.
1: That might sound ridiculous today. Does that still happen? Yes, it does. There's quite a lot of controversy over modern-day organ thieves, private agencies that buy bodies and organs from bereaved families. These body brokers promise relatives that the cadavers will be used for medical research, to help save lives or make new discoveries. The families believe they're making an altruistic, selfless decision. They're usually promised a free cremation after the organs or bodies are no longer needed. But the truth is, once the contract is signed, The bodies can be used for a myriad of things, regardless of the family's request. And there are few regulations in America to stop them. In 2018, Reuters published an excellent investigative series called The Body Trade, cashing in on the donated dead. Reporters John Schiffman and Reed Levinson created an incredible seven-part series that is fascinating and horrifying. They discovered that these non-transplant tissue banks are selling parts overseas, different organs to different countries, so there's no hope of receiving ashes, or at least the family members' ashes. Schiffman and Levinson wrote, They are distinct from the organ and tissue transplant industry, which the U.S. government closely regulates. Selling hearts, kidneys, and tendons for transplant is illegal, but no federal law governs the sale of cadavers or body parts for use in research or education. So how do you know if your body is going to be used the way you intended? Schiffman found that the most reliable places to donate are universities or, in America, state agencies. Avoid body brokers. At the University of Edinburgh, Ian Campbell says that they make sure that students understand just how crucial it is to respect the bodies they're working with.
3: The students all have to sign a code of conduct. It's not a case they're texting me, oh, guess what I've done today. They respect the body. A way of doing that is with a memorial service. All the first years attend, and I think it reconnects them with the idea of what the material they've been using to learn from is actually connected in real life to the people they see before them, the mothers, daughters, cousins, brothers, sisters of the people who have generously donated their body.
1: And there are other issues, like a black market for body parts to be sold by their living owners. William Winslade is a psychotherapist and a professor of philosophy of medicine at the University of Texas. He says that selling your body parts is actually pretty easy.
2: There's a whole underground of people that will sell parts of their body. There's a website and go to it and you can find people that are willing to sell a kidney even though it's illegal to do so.
1: Winslet says it's not just illegal, it's dangerous. But much like in Burke and Hare's time, there's still a supply and demand problem.
2: Yeah, they're selling selling bones. Surgeons need to practice, they need to they need to have tissue and bones to learn and there isn't probably enough donated stuff, so there are people that are, you know, under the table.
1: If we dismiss the ethical issues for a moment, there's still the idea that once you're dead, your usefulness might not need to end. Janet Phillips says there is an argument for not wasting bodies, valuable material, if they can be used for the greater good. They would have just
3: gone into a grave and rotted away. Because they were taken to Knox, they trained thousands of surgeons on them. And you've got to equate that as that is a better use of that body than just putting it in the ground.
1: But of course, the rebuttal is also really convincing.
3: Yes, you're training all these doctors, but if that person is of the belief that they need their body to be whole to get up to heaven, then
1: their wishes should be observed. And that's at the crux of this story. Respect. The lack of respect for human remains, for the people they once were, and the callousness of science in some cases. But for Burke and Hare, their contribution to medicine, such as it was, would end in October of 1828. And one of them would himself end up on an anatomist's table. But which one? On All Saints Day, the two police officers lingered in evening candlelight near the doorway of William Burke's little flat. The investigators were still wondering about that woman the Greys were talking about, Mary Docherty. Where exactly did she go? William Burke and Nellie McDougall repeated their story. She had stayed with them for just a bit for the celebrations. And yes, she had a bit too much whiskey. They speak to the Burks
3: about the Mary Campbell, and they, they admit that they knew her. They say that she was at that party, but that she left at seven.
1: One officer stepped away with Burke, determined to ask more questions without Nellie around. Burke looked at his wife as she talked with a different officer about the details— Like what time exactly Mary Doherty left their house? Burke and Nellie both confirmed that she left at seven. But there was a problem.
3: It's only when they talk to Burke and his wife separately, they discover that one of them is talking about seven in the morning and one of them is talking about seven at night.
1: On the final episode of this season of Tenfold More Wicked... What is he saying? What were the highlights of this, you know, document that was printed?
3: What he was mainly saying is that Knox knew all about it. There's only one particular person who says that who has a vendetta against Knox at that point.
2: I have the dubious honour of having responsibility and ownership of a mass murderer's skeleton. And part of me thinks, well, crikey, no, I don't like that. But the way that his legacy can be turned to be positive is really heartwarming
1: If you love historical true crime be sure to order my book American Sherlock It's about a real life Sherlock Holmes who solved some of the most gruesome murders in the 1920s This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel Sound designer Eric Friend Composer Curtis Heath Artwork Nick Toga Executive Producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareff, and Danielle Kramer. Clips at the beginning of the episode are from the movie Peter Cushing, The Fiendish Ghouls, and the radio show Crime Classics from the episode titled If a Body Need a Body, Just Call Burke and Hare. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wicked, and on Twitter at More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.